You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast. In this particular episode, we are discussing the Royal African Company. And uh, the title of this podcast will be The Black Royal African Company. So we're going to get into uh, how the company was formed. Uh, We'll get into specifically its charter And we'll talk a little bit about uh, what they were actually trading. And of course, uh, one of the main things that has been throughout history, I feel, told in very inaccurate perspective are the trading of African slaves. So we'll get into that as well. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the numbers or slash the volume of the uh, Africans that were traded, and uh, then we'll wrap up. So with that said, let's get into the overall high-level history from a couple of different perspectives, and then we'll get into the uh, nitty-gritty of the Royal African Company. So... Use a little technology here. So this is uh, this source is from PBS, and uh, David Blight on the formation of the Royal African Company. A question was, can you walk me through the formation of the Royal African Company? Well, as the labor system of the American South began to transform out of indentured servitude into racial s- slavery in that period the 1660s to the 1700s to the end of the 17th century. The British are becoming more and more heavily involved in the Atlantic slave trade. They established the Royal African Company with a monopoly in the late 17th century. But after the turn of the 18th century, the Royal African Company ceased to have a monopoly on the trade and the slave trade on the west coast of Africa was open to any British citizen who wanted to participate in it. And this is when you began to see the boom towns, Bristol and Liverpool, the economies of which were rooted in the slave trade with West Africa. And eventually by the 1730s and 1740s, the British are dominating the African slave trade. The vast majority of the slaves brought to the whole new world after the 1720s and 1730s came in British ships. So that by the time we're talking about these American colonies in the middle of the 18th century, leading towards the American Revolution, they are part of the British Empire that is now deeply involved in the Atlantic slave trade. It has become one of the most important cogs in the whole of the Atlantic trade for the British. Okay. So this is dude's uh, take on the Royal African Company. Not all the way how it went down. Um, What was interesting to me now, I don't know about you all, but I was never taught about indentured servitude in school. I was taught that uh, the colonies and labor 
was exclusively from the African slave trade, okay? So he is absolutely correct that indentured servitude was the main source of labor for the colonies. What he is not correct about is the African slave trade replacing indentured servitude. That is not the fact. The numbers do not support that, and we'll go into that a little bit. Um, now, African slave trade definitely happened, but not in the vast numbers that they claimed. Uh, so we'll get into that as well. And he is accurate that the uh, Royal African Company was all about business. Okay. All right. So uh, the other thing I just wanted to highlight, and I'm giving you all this to just show you what official narrative they give, and then we get into other sources that are not known to the public to validate what really happened. Okay, so this is from Wikipedia, the Royal African Company. Royal African Company, RAC, was an English mercantile trading company set up in the 1660s by the Royal Stewart family and City of London merchants to trade along the west coast of Africa. Boom. Okay. Let's be clear. Was set up for trading. Okay. Now what the official narrative will have you to believe that that trading was exclusively for African slaves. And that was not the case. All right? So, let's get into their narrative. It was led by the Duke of York, who was, brother, who was the brother of Charles II and later took the throne as James II. Okay? So this is pretty much saying King James took the realms of the Royal African Company. But let's be fair to King James. It was not about exclusively trading African slaves. It was a trading company of goods. African slaves became a part of the particular trading. Okay? So it gets into, it shipped more African slaves to the Americas than any other company in the history of the Atlantic slave trade. Okay, so now we're going to get into the actual, uh, other actual sources of how the company, the Royal African Company was formed. We're going to get into the actual charter. We're going to talk about those slave numbers and uh, wrap it up. Okay. All right. So uh, this is a source from the Oxford Journals. And so this is the Constitution and Finances of the Royal African Company of England from its foundation till 1720. Uh, the author being W.R. Scott. Okay, and they give you the source, the American 
Historical Review, 1903, Volume 8, page 241 to 259. All right. <clears throat> Let's see if I could blow this up a little bit. The Constitution and Finance of the Royal African Company of England from its founding to till 1720. The early history of the Royal African Company of England has an interest of its own in view of the peculiarities of its financial methods. Towards the close of the 17th century, the joint stock organism was adapting itself to its environment and of all the different forms of adaptation that of the African company presents the most marked characteristics. Okay, so once again, we're seeing how they are forming corporations and they have stockholders in uh, said corporations. We also saw this in the Dutch East Indian Company. We also saw this with the formation of Jamestown. Okay, so it's the same method all of the this history that we have gone over so far, it is rooted in business. The root of it is business. From the point of view of the economic history, it is important to be able to make some estimates of the amount of capital employed in early trading undertaking and the mode of their finance. Fortunately, it is possible to obtain this information in the case of the African company and also to follow the different steps by which the capital of the company had expanded or contracted according to the needs of the trade and the state of the privilege of the undertaking. Prior to the incorporation of the Royal African Company, English traders had sent intermittent voyages to the coast of Guinea over a century. Sir D. Gavirchi, writing to the Duc de Praslin in 1767, dates the foundation of the English trade to Africa as early as 1537. I'm sorry, 1536. Okay, so just once again, just letting you all know, <clears throat> that they were trading goods with Africa, right? So here they're giving it an early date as 1536. Hacklett mentions five voyages as undertaking in each of the years from 1553 to 1557. In 1563, Queen Elizabeth was a partner in an expedition commanded by John Hawkins, which yielded a satisfactory profit. In 1558, I'm sorry, in 1588, the African Company, okay, where did I go? The African Company Incorporated by Letters Patent was founded and another similar company in 1618. Okay, so let me go back up. So as you can see, the first African company was 
patenting in 1588, or it was incorporated by a patent, and a similar company in 1618. In 1631, a third charter undertaking was formed, but like its predecessors, it was unable to hold its ground. And in 1651, a temporary charter was granted the East Indian Company. Okay, and we already went over the East Indian Company. Uh, I will put a reference to that particular podcast. After the restoration, a new company was formed, which was the direct predecessor of the Royal African Company. On January 10th, 1662, Charles II incorporated a number of persons under the title of the Governor and Company of the Royal Adventures of English Trading into Africa. The charter, besides granting the usual rights of, of corporation, conveyed, in addition, the privilege of, of exclusive trade from Sally to the Cape of Good Hope. This company started under distinguished patriarch. Prince Rupert was the first governor, and amongst the 36 assistants, there were several noblemen and merchants of good standing. At first, the operations of the company promised to be very successful, but its officials involved it with the Dutch by attacking their forts in Africa. This led to reprisals and the English forts, ships, and goods on the coast of Guinea were seized by the Dutch in 1665. Okay, so again, this was all about business and goods. All right. The remainder of the short history of this company is one of the financial distress. As in the case of the previous Guinea Company, attempts were made to farm its privileges to persons who were not members. In 1668, an offer was made of £1,000 a year for seven years for the right to trade to, north, to the north coast of Africa. Okay? So again, we're talking about trade. The rents attainable for the lease of the company's privileges were in, insufficient to liquidate the debt already contracted. And in 1672, the charter was surrendered to carry out a scheme of arrangement with the creditors. All right, so ran into financial trouble in 1672. The method of satisfying the claims against the company was both drastic and original to ascertain how the situation was faced, it is necessary to examine in some detail the financial and adventurers. The capital subscribed at the formation of the company amounted to 122,000 and 305 shares of 400 pounds, I guess this is all in pounds, each divisible uh, into half shares of 200 each. The qualifications of the governor was one share or 400 pounds. 
out of the 122,000 subscribed, it was agreed that 20,000 should be paid to the representatives of Sir Nicholas Crisp, who had been a prominent member, a prominent member, sorry, <laughs> prominent member of the previous companies, company. Okay, because remember at the start of this, it talked about how uh, the company was formed before and then they pretty much um, reformed it, or if you want to say reorganize it. For the forts and factories. Gonna say that. Let me back up again. Because this is what I found consistently in the records regarding the Royal African Company. All right. So uh, 20,000 of those shares. So 20,000 out of the 122,000 shares who had been a, a, a sir were to be paid to the representatives of Sir Nicholas Crisp, who had been a prominent member of the previous company for the forts and factories, plural, in Africa. I consistently saw factories as related to the Royal African Company which led me to believe it was far more about than it was not exclusively trading African slaves. This was about trading in general goods. Okay. This debt was never discharged by the company of Royal Adventures and was still owing in 1709. As early as 1664, fresh capital was required and 2% above the ordinary interest was offered for, loan, for loans from the shareholders at par. Subscriptions were invited for 25,000, but outside the assistance, very little was raised. Okay, so in other words, they like, look, y'all then came out the gate Y'all ahead to um, reorganize the company a couple of little times, I think twice. Then you still were in debt. So now you want to raise more capital or money to continue operating your company. Okay, we'll give you a loan, but we're going to, you're going to pay above the average interest rate for this loan and they were trying to find other investors at that higher rate and they just weren't people at that point were like no whatever you all are doing we good blood we good so again i just want to point out that the african the royal african company was much more than African slave trade. As a matter of fact, it had a difficult time profiting. So the whole uh, narrative of the African slave trade being very profitable and linking the African slave trade exclusively to England 
and to the Royal African Company, hmm, some discrepancies there. On November 4th, 1665, the king wrote that considering the greatness of the company's debt and the heavy interest under which the company's stock now labors, all money realized by homecoming ships should be used in paying debts, not into new ventures. Okay, so that should be pretty self-explanatory. So uh, y'all need to pay off this debt so as you're uh, bringing loads over of those goods, you cannot turn around and reinvest those said profits back into the company. Y'all need to pay down these debts. At this date, loans could only be effective on the personal security of the assistants. In 1667, another attempt was made to float a loan but with small success, though in some cases, creditors were induced to accept bonds under the company's seal and satisfaction of their claims. From 1667 to 1671, the position of the company had gone from bad to worse, and at the latter date, the undertaking was insolvent. The debts were estimated to the amount of 57,000, I think that's pounds, and beyond the privileges of the charter, the assets were of little, if any, value. Okay, so peep that again from 1666, sorry, 1667 to 17, 1671, rather, they became insolvent, all right? So even the assets that they held were of any value. Now, I thought the African slave trade was so profitable. And if this company, the Royal African Company, was exclusively about African slave trade, hmm, or is that not the official narrative? Well, that's the official narrative they, they give. The true story is that the African Royal Company was just simply a trading company, okay? Now, they also did trade in slaves. Let's not get it twisted. They did, but that was not the original setup of the company. So let's continue. The company and its creditors were therefore in the dilemma that there were few, if any, assets except the charter, and if the charter were to be of any value, working capital was required. In the existing state of the company's finances, there being no credit, capital could not be attained until the creditors had been satisfied. Right. So in other words, pay your debt. If there... If it was therefore to the interest of both shareholders and creditors that the company should be reconstructed even at considerable sacrifice. And in 1671, a scheme was drawn up and accepted which provided for winding up the company and for the formation of a new one while giving some compensation to members uh, and bondholders. The following was the reconstruction scheme adopted 
which provided for the formation of a new company with a capital of 100000 The existing, okay, so this is table A showing the reconstructing scheme. So here they are again in 1671, reorging the company again. This time they're restructuring the debt. All right, so the existing capital of 122000 to be written down by 90%. So y'all know what time that is. They had to get that debt up off them books. So that took it down to 12200 Creditors for debt of the fifty-seven thousand to be to receive two thirds, thirty-eight thousand in stock of the old company. Okay, so those that uh, the creditors that had about fifty-seven thousand in stock and all of that, now we're only going to get thirty-eight thousand. The 38,000 stock was to be likewise written down. Oh, baby. Dang, they even wrote that down by 90% in exchange for stock in the new company. Chow. All right. So the 57,000 in stock originally got written down to 38,000, and then that got written down and it, uh, to. 3,800, so 90%. And then um, they also got stock in the new company. Okay, so now again, they're giving you the financial history of this Royal African Company. Creditors were to receive the remaining third in debt of debt in cash out of subscriptions below. Balance of subscriptions, 84,000. Total new, total capital new country, new company rather, 100,000. Allocation of capital of new companies between shareholders and creditors of the old. Stock of new company to shareholders and creditors of old company. Cash to creditors of old company. Oh, I'm sorry. Stock of new company to shareholders and creditors of old company. 16,000. Cash to creditors of old company. 19,000. Cash available as working capital. 65,000. That uh, adds up to the 100K. Okay. So once again, they are giving you the financial history of the Royal African Company. And I am going over this information in detail to show you that the official narrative that they are giving you about the Royal African Company doing massive slave trading and how it was so profitable, this, that, and a third, is not really the case. Like always, they take a little bit of the actual truth and blow it into an entire narrative to justify the
the makeup of the population, specifically the population in the Americas, all right? So the position of the creditors on reconstruction for each debt of 100 pounds, there was paid in cash one-third, 33. The remaining two-thirds of the debt converted into stock of the old company for the same amount. This was transferred to stock of the new company at 10% of its nominal value, giving as the equivalent of the remaining 66 of the debt stock of the new company worth at par, all right? So also, this should just show you all how sophisticated they were with stocks, bonds, the formation of companies, charters, appointing officers to the company, um, even down to licensing, so all of these things that you see today in the economy, none of it is new. Absolutely none of it is new. That is how the founding of the United States of America was stood up on. It is still to this day all about corporations, and business, right? Okay, conditional on stock selling at par. In order to carry out the scheme of rearrangement of capital, the charter was surrendered. As otherwise, it was held that the new capital to be raised might have been claimed by the creditors of the old company. On the cancellation of the charter, Charles II incorporated the creditors and shareholders who assented to the reconstruction scheme as the Royal African Company of England in 1672. Okay, so as you can see, it took them three particular reorganizations and uh this last charter of the Royal A African Company of England, Charles II chartered it. As it will be found, the two distinct series of events, namely the state of the finances of the company and opposition to the monopoly, were frequently interacting and influencing its fortunes. It will be conducive to a clearer understanding of the transactions of an eventual, eventful 50 years to trace the history of each separately. The Royal African Company of England, its privileges. Under the charter of 1672, the usual privileges of incorporation are granted as well as the whole and entire and only trade from Sally to the Cape of Good Hope and the adjacent islands. Okay, so this charter um, is given specific locations where trading can be done. The company has the right of acquiring lands within these limits, 
provided such lands were not owned by any Christian prince. To have and to hold for 1,000 years, subject to the payment of two elephant teeth, when any member of the royal family landed in Africa. So, child, let me sip this water and we fenced them back up and go over there just right quick. Okay. <clears throat> right. So they already gave you out of the uh, 1670. This is the 1672 charter for the Royal African Company of England. They're telling you the territory where the trading can occur, Sailly to Cape, to the Cape of Good Hope and the adjacent islands. And the company had the right of acquiring lands within these limits, provided such lands were not owned by any Christian prince. And... They're saying to have and to hold for 1,000 years, subject to the payment of two elephant teeth, when any member of the royal family landed in Africa. Okay? So just so you know, uh, this particular publication is getting their information from the treasury records of ro the Royal African Company. Powers were also given to the company to make peace and war with any non-Christian nation. Amongst other miscellaneous, miscellaneous privileges, the right of mine royal was conveyed to the company on condition that the crown might claim two-thirds of the gold one on paying two-thirds of the expenses, the company retaining the remaining third. Okay, so let's back up because I want us to be clear all of what the Royal African Company of England was doing. So this is out of the charter of 1672, which Charles II put together or authorized, okay? And anytime you hear the term charter, you should understand that that is the authority to do business. Okay? And within that charter, it's going to give specifics, which this is given. It's given the territories, which they can do business. And now it's breaking down exactly the type of business they can do. So, so far, it talked about acquiring land. And then the next one, it talked about mining. Okay? And in each case, it, it cases of even the land acquisition and in the mining, it tells you the payments. A considerable portion of the charter is occupied with provisions as to the internal government of the company. Yeah, and that, and that part too. It also gives specifics on who's going to run the company, what their position is, um, how long they're going to hold that office, this, that, and the third. The stockholders were to elect annually one governor, one sub-governor, 
one deputy governor, and 24 assistants. This part of the Constitution is similar to that of the East Indian Company at this date, except that the 24 officials are here called assistants instead of committees, and that a new office, that of sub-governor, is created. The latter difference is accounted for by the fact that the governorship of the African company was an honorary appointment filled by members of the royal family. The quorum at the court meeting was seven, of whom either the governor, sub-governor, or deputy governor must be one. In 1714, the qualifications for an assistant was 2,000 pounds. Each 5,000 pounds of stock commanded one vote up to a maximum of five votes. So again, we don't get anything else out of this. I want us to get two things. One, I want us to understand how they did business it's pretty much how business is still done today regarding articles of incorporation, which you can say are slash charters in this case, shareholders, officers and said company, specifics on what uh, the company is formed for what they can do within the company. So the overall gist of how they were doing business. And this is consistent. We see this consistently across the board. Every time we look at one of these companies, we saw this with the East uh, Indian Company and we also saw this in Jamestown, okay? The second thing I want us to get out of this is that the Royal African Company was not exclusively about African slave trade. All right. Okay, so in 1680, the stockholders numbered 198. In addition to the privileges conferred by the charter, the company endeavored in 1672 to obtain parliamentary sanction by promoting a bill. This was read a first time in the House of Lords, but was not proceeded with. For seven years from its foundation up to 1678, the company was highly successful in the three years, 1676 to 17, I'm sorry, 1678, 50 guineas percent were paid or nearly 55%. All right. These favorable results engender hostility in two ways. As with the Indian company, persons who had suffered for infringements of the monopoly of the company were bitter against it. And secondly, those who had lost money from 1662 to 17, I'm sorry, to 1670 and had failed to, 
take up stock in the new undertaking were jealous of the others who had been more fortunate. So in other words, those that had lost money in the um, those first ventures of the company, and they were like, nah, blood. When they came back around this third time to form the new company, was like, nah, I'll pass. I'm not investing any more money with you all. They're salty. And I don't know why they salty. I mean, you chose not to invest. And I can understand why if they failed at it two, three times. So I don't know why you salty, but oh, well, whatever. Writing in June 1679, a member of the company says, Mr. Edward Seymour is very bitter because in the former stock, he lost nearly 400 pounds and is unconcerned in this. He was a subscriber, but never paid his money. So he envies us. And I believe we fare never the better at this time by having the Duke of York as our governor. Okay, so uh, Seymour was salty. But Seymour, you didn't buy into the new company. Child, they a hot mess. Later in the year, the same writer says that if the king wants money, the company was not in the position to lend it for that as a poor, for that's for that's as poor as a courtier. We go on paying off our debts that if the company be broke, nobody may be suffers, but those that be in it. Okay, so in other words, the king was trying to get some ends and they like, no, nah, no, nah, blood, we need to make sure we pay our debts to keep this company going. So you not finna cipher off money about the company that we really don't have. That's what it sounds like to me anyway, is what they're saying. The pessimistic procrastination uh, procrastination of the last sentence was not borne out by events. For in the 13 years from 1680 to 1692, eight dividends were paid and apparently a substantial reserve fund was formed. Okay, so they paying dividends. So I'm just tripping family that all of this stuff that we see today regarding the stock market, <laughs> they was doing all of that back up in the day. So none of this stuff is new. So here they talking about paying out dividends to their shareholders. In 1691, the amount of the proprietor stock was quadrupled without payment. Child, that ain't a good thing. Mm. Let's see what they talking about. This operation, like the doubling of the East Indian Company shares in 1681, seems to have brought bad luck. For from 1691 to 1697, a series of disasters were encountered partly through the war and partly by disorganization of trade by persons who infringed the exclusive privileges of the company. Child. So they're saying that the stock, the value of the stock was going up. So which should have meant the company was profitable, but yet, they weren't paying dividends to the shareholders. Okay, so let's see what they're saying. After the East 
I'm sorry, after the Indian company had passed through the ordeal of an organized attack on its monopoly from 1692 to 1694, the opponents of exclusive grants turned their attention to the Royal African Company. Okay, so they was describing what went on in the um, East Indian Company. The position of the company, both financially and legally, was comparatively weak, and the assistance with some strategic ability petitioned Parliament in 1694 for leave to bring in a bill to establish the company rather than wait for the expected request for the formation of a regulated company. Okay, so it sounds like they didn't get all of their paperwork in properly. This is really interesting. They alleged that the African trade was impossible unless carried on by a joint stock company with exclusive privileges. Okay, so now I want us to remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the Royal African Company. They allege that the African trade was impossible unless carried on by joint stock companies with exclusive privileges. The cost of the upkeep of the forts was 20000 a year, and a regulated company could not find so large a sum. They also claimed consideration on the ground of the large losses of the company during the war, which were estimated at 400000 Davenant, who wrote in favor of the company, urged that it was the policy of its opponents to depreciate the value of the forts and factories so that they should be transferred to the proposed regulated company at a nominal price. Precedent was in favor of a joint stock company for the African trade for all other countries manage it on that basis. And in no case by a regulated company, the reason being that in dealing with savages, forts and an armed force were necessary and the consequent charges could only be raised equitably from a joint stock. So they're saying they got a lot of high risk here. Further, in dealing with natives, unity of counsel, councils and a uniformity of rules were indispensable. A single independent trader who, for the sake of a quick profit, was prepared to ill-treat the natives had it in his power to endure the trade of other Englishmen by exciting the hostility of the chiefs. Okay, so again, I want us to realize what we're talking about. We're talking about the formation of the Royal African Company, the financial setup and structure, and now they're getting into the risk that the Royal African Company of England faced. And um, sounds like forts were being attacked, factories, the upkeep of said forts and factories, and how they had to deal with 
native unity of council and a uniformity of rulers, or I'm sorry, of rules were indispensable. A single independent trader who, for the sake of a quick profit, was prepared to ill-treat the natives had it in his power to endure the trade of other Englishmen by exciting the hostility of the chiefs. So in other words, you had independent traders going out there trying to do business or whatever with the African chiefs, dirty dealing and getting them all up hot up under the collar, ticking them off, making it more difficult for the Royal African Company of England to turn around and do business with the chiefs. Right? As against these arguments, some very damaging evidence was abduced against the company at the parliamentary inquiry, which began on March 2nd, 1694. One trader, Richard Holder, swore that he had a capital of 40,000 employed in Guinea, traded under license from the company. Okay, so again, fam, they were very sophisticated as it relates to business. So here they issue they were issuing out licensing to trade in Africa. Okay, so you would have a license under the Royal African Company of England. To do business. So almost like. Um, to license a particular product. Those of you that are sports fans. Um, the NFL teams or the NBA team. Let's say you want to sell. Their swag. The, the jerseys or whatever NBA, NFL um, stuff. You would have to obtain a license and you would have to pay a fee in order to sell their merchandise. And you have to sell it under their particular conditions. And you can't go around changing their said product. Okay. All right. Just like software today, you pay a license fee to use certain software, but you are not authorized to change that software in any way. And in the case of software companies, you can't even resell it. You're paying that licensing fee to use it. But in this case, the license fee was to do business or to trade in Africa and in specifics, specific parts of Africa. Okay. So, <clears throat> on his first expedition, he made a profit of 50% in seven months after paying 26% to the 
to the company on the value of his cargo. The next year, the cost of his license was increased to 40%. And in addition, he was compelled to buy his trade goods from the company, which cost him an extra 3 or 4%. Woo! Above the market price. Yee! Okay, so what I want us to note here, number one, they had licensing, okay? And they're very specific family. If anything else, these folks are all about the business and they documented extremely well how that business was to operate. Hence, I am believing when folks say, always follow the money, they know what they're talking about because following the money tells the story, okay? So let's keep reading. I don't know if this was just the licensing agreement period, which is eating into his profit if that's the case or if this all of these particular fees happened because um, he didn't have, quote, quote, the original working capital, all right? So that's the one point I want us to be mindful of. The second point I want us to be mindful of, it's once again stated, he was compelled to buy his trade goods from the company, okay? So again, the Royal African Company of England was about trading goods, okay? Not saying that they were not trading slaves. We'll get to that. But the main purpose was trading goods in the specific area of Africa, which they gave you that specific area. Right. He also suffered from being limited to trade only at certain specific places. Besides these and other complaints of the excessive cost of licenses, okay, so it was, child, yeah, that was a high cost for them licensing. It was alleged that the company had not compiled with a provision in its charter under which all goods imported were to be sold by inch of candle, i.e. by public auction. In the case of Redwood, Sales had been made privately to some three or four flavored persons with the result that the commodity was engrossed and the price of it was three times what it had been formerly. So, child, they pretty much, fam, just giving you the breakdown of um, how they are trading, and today we would call this um, import-export tax and all of that jazz. So now just to note, so far, what have they talked about that could be traded, okay, or bought? They talked about land, they talked about mining, and now in this case, they're giving you redwood, I still don't see in here where they're talking about persons or slaves, okay? 
Now, again, that's not saying that it did not happen. It absolutely happened. We have the records that it happened, but that was not the main purpose of this chartered company, okay? The first result of the inquiry was that the Parliamentary Committee recommended that the trade should be conducted on a joint stock basis and the company receive leave to bring in a bill. This decision gave rise to further opposition and fresh petitions against the company. Finally, in 1697, by the Act 9 and 10 Wheel uh, 3, C-26, a compromise was effected. The company was continued, but its monopoly was modified so far as to legalize the position of the separate traders who were to pay the following charges to the company to aid in the maintenance of the forts. Okay, so on outward voyages, all goods, 10%. Gold, silver, Negroes, nil. Okay, so this is right here telling you all what they were traded. So outward, going over there, 10%. Coming home, gold, silver, Negroes, Neil. Redwood, 5%. Other goods, 10%. Okay, so again... Not saying that slave trading did not happen, but that was not the main profit, okay? They tell you specifically what they were bringing in, what they were taking out, okay? So now it's interesting. I'm assuming nil means nada, nothing, Okay, so let's keep going. This settlement was to last for 13 years at least, and the separate traders had the right of establishing factories if they wished to do so. Okay, so now we should understand that those factories were definitely about goods and services. Now we should understand based on what they told you up here, what was coming in, what was going out, that it was more than about slave trading. All right. The effect of this arrangement was to render the African trade open to all who would pay the specified charges. The company discharged the duties of a regulated company without the privileges that accompanied them. Through the separate traders, I'm sorry, though the separate traders had represented at the inquiry that failing the formation of a regulated company, they were prepared to pay 5 to 10% for licensing. They now proceeded to undermine the position of the existing company. After the passing of the act, while the company was raising nearly half a million of nominal capital to equip expeditions, 
The first ships of the separate traders to reach Africa spread reports that the company was bankrupt and that the assistants were threatened with imprisonment for attempting to sell the forts to the Dutch. Child. They seized several chiefs to ensure larger consignments of slaves for shipments to plantations. The factors employed by the company were in many instances induced to enter the service of separate traders and others who did not change masters engage in private trade. Okay. So child, this stuff was a hot mess. But again, uh, what we should be getting out of this is definitely they were doing slave trading. Okay. We should also be getting out of this that the chiefs, the African chiefs were involved in the business of slave trading. And we should note that uh, that means that the stewards, Nim, that bloodline was involved in African slave trading. Now, it was not on the wide scale of the millions and millions that they claim. And we're going to get in those, into those numbers. But that particular kingdom, they were involved in slave trading. But to be fair, the Royal African Company of England, that was not, slave trading was not their main um, point of business. Under such circumstances, the trade could not be profitable to the company. Okay, so... Now, you heard them just sit up here and tell you all what they was trading. So we're just going to go back up just to re-remind people. Um, so this was stuff uh, going out of England. So coming home, gold, silver, Negroes, redwood, and other goods. Okay, so down here, they're telling you all the problems that they running up into. And even they get down to uh, the African slaves. They're having um, <clears throat> negotiation issues. And even with all of that said, the factors employed by the company were in many instances induced to enter the service of separate traders and others who did not change masters engaged in private trade. Under such circumstances, the trade could not be profitable to the company and an even greater disadvantage than the hostility of the separate traders arose from the erroneous financial methods of the company, which will be explained below. So the reason I went back over this is, is just to show you that the African, uh, the Royal African Company of England had a problem with being profitable. Okay? And they were having a problem being profitable based on the way the business was structured and the debt that was incurred. So the company itself wasn't really making money off of all of those things they were trading, including the slaves. Including the slaves. And so it appears that they're saying that it was more profitable for private 
trade. Okay? Which hence <clears throat> will probably be one of the reasons where eventually they issued um, in the charters over in the Americas that slave trading was illegal because it just wasn't profitable for them. Okay? So meaning it was more of a profitability issue versus moral. Okay? So but let's, let's just see where they, they continue to take that. Uh, take this because what we've always heard is that slave trade, African slave trading was very profitable. Okay. But once you start using logic, you're like, okay, so you're telling me that was more profitable than indentured servants. That was more profitable than using the prisoners of war on those um, colonized lands. Uh, okay, because you would think that the overhead that they would have from the African voyage, uh, what they have to pay for said slaves, would make it very expensive to have African slaves versus in the long run using indentured servants, etc. But okay, you know, that's what they told us the, the narrative was, that it was cheaper to have African slaves than it was um, to use regular labor, which regular labor, you have to look at it in the idea of what they call indentured servants. Those were really employment con contracts. So now here we are in the history of the, app, the Royal African Company and we're finding out that all the things that they were trading under this company, including the African slaves, they were having problems with profitability. All right. So having issue stock at a low price as 12 per 100, I'm, I'm guessing that's 12 um, pounds per 100 in 1697, Further capital was attained subsequently by the issue of the uh, issue of bonds at first from the public and later by an assessment on stockholders for which script was given. Not only so, but out of this money borrowed on the bond dividends were paid as an encouragement to induce members to make further payments. Child, this is financially a hot mess, baby, with a capital H. The result was that the amount borrowed on bonds, while only one-fourth of the nominal capital, actually exceeded the sums paid for that capital at the average of the various prices of issue. So they was borrowing more than the value of the bonds, basically. So it's into some serious debt. Taking into account the unsatisfactory condition of the trade, the, inev the inevitable results of such vicious finance followed in 1708 when interest on the bonds could no longer be paid. So boom. They became insolvent slash bankrupt. Or they defaulted on the bonds. Let's put it that way. 
they defaulted on the bonds. They couldn't make um, those interest payments. As a last resort, applications was made to the parliament at first in 1707 and again in 1709. In the latter year, in view of the nearness of the expiration of the 13 years mentioned in the Act of 9 and 10, William III, the company petitioned for a fresh settlement on the ground that an open trade had depressed the price of English goods in Africa and raised the price of Negroes in America. So I'm going to let that marinate with y'all. Let me take a sip of this water and we'll break that down. So y'all already saw up above where they had defaulted on the interest payments on the bond. So as a last resort, they went to the parliament in 1707 and they went back in 1709 in view of the nearness of the expiration of the 13 years mentioned, because I think this was supposed to be for 13 years, that this charter was in effect for this business. So they wanted to renegotiate their settlement because what they're saying is because y'all license stuff to other people and allow for... Uh, independent sellers or contractors or and or just individual sellers started getting into this market and open trade that's what open trade means so other folks beside or competition rather that be from licensing that they had sold under the Royal African Company of England or whether or not it was just Maybe other folks outside of England, other nations were going over there trading. It had made the price of English goods in Africa and raised the uh, price. It had, had uh, made the price of the goods go lower. So the English goods in Africa, the prices dropped. Because of competition and goods in Africa and raise the price of Negroes in America. Now note the year they're saying this. 1709. So it became too expensive to do this African slave trading situation. To be honest, not only African slave trading, but their trading period became too expensive. They were losing money. Okay. All right. The, this argument, which was similar to that advanced by the East Indian Company, 1656 to 1657, was supported by the planters who gave as reason for the enhancement of the price of Negroes, first, that there was excessive competition among the shippers in Africa and that therefore the cost price at the port was higher. And secondly, that owing to the want of skill of the new traders, the mortality, 
the mortality on the voyage was greater with the results that the price of slaves in the West Indies was double what it had been before the trade was open. So just like those of us that just kind of logically think about the official narrative that, that they were giving us, when you line up the available labor pool that they would have had back in that time to work on those plantations, we automatically thought, well, that would have been rather expensive to bring African slaves over. So they're telling you right here in the record. Okay? The company with the company with the optimism of a suitor before a parliamentary committee stated that the stockholders were willing to advance more sums on their joint stock. The other side endeavored to show that the company, owing to its financial embarrassment, was in no position to maintain the present forts or to raise capital to build new ones. So in other words, some are still trying to make it work, honey. Because they, what, they own they this is their fourth time restructuring debt. Because this business model straight up ain't working. All right? So some is saying, y'all need to go on and go have several seats. Y'all should be embarrassed for coming back up here asking somebody to restructure your little raggly debt. And you don't be you don't need to be maintaining no ports. Matter of fact, you you really don't need to be doing business over there, period. During the season 1709 to 1717, I'm sorry, 1709 to 1710, the company's trade was only about one thirteenth of that that separate traders, as is shown by the following table okay so you can see where the company so the company again is the royal african company of england they had three ships separate tra traders had 44 ships and they even give you breakdown to the value of the cargo etc etc all right Although altogether the company's case did not appear to advance to advantage, although the company's case did not appear to advantage, and on March, I don't know if that's advanced, but anyway, on March 31st, 1712, it was resolved by a committee of the House of Commons that the African trade should be open to all British subjects under the management of a regulated company. Okay, so in other words, the um, king and them was trying to manage it with their people and not open it to everybody. And they then tried it basically four times and it just wasn't working. Okay. So now they want to open it up. The forts were to be maintained and enlarged. The cost of such maintenance shall be defrayed by a charge on the trade. 
The plantations should be supplied with Negroes at a cheap rate. Okay, so again, this is confirming that there was definitely African trade. And this is also confirming that King Charles Nim, which is part of that uh, Stuart, King James and them lineage, they did participate in it as well. A considerable stock was needed for carrying on trade to the best advantage. At least $100,000 value of English goods should be exported annually to Africa. Okay. Now, I don't know about y'all, but as they were peddling <laughs> the doctrine of the African slave trade, I ain't learned it none of this. I did not learn about it being an actual trading company of goods. And I did not learn that it was an actual agreement where England would also send goods over to Africa as well. So I did not learn that this was an import-export business. Okay? That just so happened to also include a, a part of that African slaves that they are terming Negro in this particular um, paperwork. Okay? So those of us in the Americas, you should understand how those census records and birth records changed from Indian to mulatto to black to Negro, okay? And why folks to this day equate Negro to African slave, but that is why you have to follow the paperwork. You have to dig into the census records and you have to look to other sources beyond the official narrative source that they are giving you to get the complete picture. All right. Okay. Okay. So, <clears throat> Again, these are the conditions that uh, the Royal African Company of England put in place. And um, I don't see how that made doing business easier for now. You might as well call them the independent contractors or the people that were going to be up under the licensing, okay? So in other words, the business model that this company originally set up under the English crown, they couldn't make that business model work. They tried three times. So now they're like, okay, our business model is just not profitable. But, you know, we're going to keep it going, but now we're just going to open it up for private entrepreneurs to do it 
via licensing. I'm assuming they were still doing licensing and or uh, just allowing entrepreneurs to do it. But either way, these are the terms. Okay. And um, that put a heavy burden on those independent contractors. Okay, so they had to maintain the forts. The cost of such maintenance shall be defrayed by a charge on the trade. Um, then they wanted the cost of those Negro slaves cheap. So if the cost of those Negro slaves was high for the um, independent contractor, what you telling me that I got to eat that cost? Because you telling me I need to sell them to you at a cheaper rate? Well, how about I just don't do it at all? <laughs> okay. Plus, uh, a value of $100,000 or uh, pounds worth of English goods needed to be exported annually to Africa. So those were the new renegotiated terms that they put for the Royal African Company of England. Okay. So naturally, the company petitioned against these resolutions, which were attended to form the basis of a fresh bill. The assistants urged that the company had a legal right to their forts, and if this right were denied, they claimed that the same trial at law as any other corporation to defend their freehold. After considerable debate, the matter dropped, and as far as the legal position of the company was concerned, no change was made. Right? An act, however, was passed December 20th, 1712, to enact the company to make a settlement with its creditors, okay? Which legalized the arrangement explained below. All right. So, what um, they were proposing. The parliament, I'm assuming it was the parliament, was proposing all of these conditions. They're like, uh, no, that's not going to work. You know, we have a right to um, operate our own ports, this, that, and the third. So they came back, all right, you know what? Y'all need to settle the debt with your creditors. On April 13, 1713, the House of Commons again resolved that the trade should be open. Okay, so open up that trade to them independent contractors, subject to chain charges for the maintenance of forts, and a bill was brought in to give effort to this resolution, which, after passing the Commons, was rejected by the House of Lords. Thus, the respective rights of the company and the separate traders remained undetermined. On several occasions, Parliament endeavored to effect some improvement, but without success. In 1750, the Joint Stop Company was dissolved after many further changes of capital. And in 1752, the forts were transferred from the recently created regulated company to the Crown. All right, 
So the crown took back control of those ports. So as you can see out the gate, the Royal African Company of England, they had a lot of problems, okay? The finance of the Royal African Company in the foregoing account of the contests against the exclusive privileges of the company, it had been necessary to postpone the consideration of the financial operations of the assistance owing to the complicated nature of the capital account. Going back to the formation of the company in 1672, the preamble or prospectus for subscription had mentioned 100,000 pounds as the amount of proposed capital. But by 1676, the total stock issue child, was uh, 111,000 pounds, at which figure it remained during the successful years of the company's history till 1691 when by the order of the general court held on July 30th it was resolved to give a bonus in stock of 300 percent to each stockholder there is reason to believe I'm sorry, there is reason to believe that the company had accumulated a considerable reserve out of profit over and above the 10 or 20 guiani percent paid annually as dividends. The assistance in speaking of these early earlier years mentioned the great and extraordinary success with which the trade had been carried on. Houghton, too, stated in 1682 that the uh, Guinea Company was as safe as the East Indian Company. The wording of the resolution for the bonus addition of capital confirms this view of the company's finances at the time. Child. It is expressed in the following terms, voted by reason of the great improvements that have been made on the company's stock of uh, 111,000 that every 100 adventured be made 400 pounds and that the members have credit given them accordingly. After the date of this re resolution, the capital stood at 444,400 of which only about 80,000 had been paid in cash, a part of the stock having been reserved for members and creditors of the old company. Okay, so I don't know if they're saying that they only paid out um, 80,000 in um, dividends out of that uh, 444,000. The time for quadrupling the stock was ill-chosen. For on the outbreak of the war, immediately afterwards, the company sustained great losses. In 1691, capital was required to carry on the trade and on March 27, an issue of 180,000 of stock was made at 
$40 for the share of 100, bringing in $72,340. So it looks like they issued out more shares. Child. This issue came at a time when the price of the stock had been falling. So you issuing out more stock than what, what was originally uh, stated and the price is falling? Child, they really botched up this company. This stuff is a hot mess. And the sad part about it, we still see this crap going on today. Child. As far as from a comp how companies are doing business, per se. In 1692, the quotation had varied from 52 to 44. In the next year, 1693, that of the issue during the month of January is varied from 47 to 46. In February and March, previous to new issues, the quotation was 44. Afterwards, it fell to 28 to 30 to 41, so that the issue price gave a very small bonus to applicants. The price remained at 41 during the months of April and May. So as y'all can see, how they're explaining to you or uh, describing to you rather they're describing to you how the value of the stocks or the shares were going up and down with the Royal African Company of England, which is no different how stocks move today, right? And based on the stock price determines rather the stockholders are gaining a profit or the shareholders, same thing, shareholders, stockholders are gaining a profit or if they are losing money, meaning their original investment that they put in, they're not even getting that. With a few temporary recoveries, it fell to 36 at the end of September reaching 32 early in October, the lowest point of the year. Because what was it? I think the initial, was the initial 44? I don't know if it was 44 or 41. But anyway, the 36 was below that initial. Shortly afterwards, there was a recovery to 34, which was maintained in November and December. The evidence of the parliamentary inquiry of 1694 in combination with other unfavorable circumstances, still further reduced the market value of the stock, the lowest prices of the years 1694, 1695, 1696, and 1697, being 2018, 17, and 13, respectively. So you can see as each year went on how the value of the stock dropped. During, during these years, the company had become considerably indebted and instead of sending ships to Africa, it had licensed merchants not free of the company at a high royalty. Okay, so that's what we've been talking about 
because they couldn't make their initial business model work, they started licensing out to other private merchants to do business over in Africa. After, to do trading over in Africa. After the compromise of the Act of 1697, <clears throat> which while not providing a satisfactory settlement of the company's legal position, at least settled matters for some years. An attempt was made to raise capital to discharge the most pressing liabilities and to dispatch ships. The governor and assistants decided to make a fresh issue of capital. In 1697, the price of the stock had fallen as low as 13 pounds for cash and 16 for payment in banknotes. It was resolved on October 7th to double the existing capital of 625,000 pounds to issue I'm sorry, the new issue being offered at $12 per 100 pound stock payable by installment of seven pounds, presently three pounds on April 7, 1698 and two pounds on October 7, 1698. Although the issue price gave a bonus of nearly 10%. Only 475,000 stock was taken up, which, which uh, realized 57,000. So in other words, people weren't trying to be bothered with it at that point. Thus, the total capital after October 7, 1697 stood at 1 million, I'm just going to say 1 million and some change. Ooh, child, they know they jumbled that up. They didn't reformulate it, reformulate it, reformulate it, reformulate it. And what's tripping me out, family, is the fact that this is how folks, this is how they still do business today. Although I don't think at this point today, they would allow them to, uh, they would keep reformulating at this point they would go just go bankrupt or another entity would step in and buy it up totally okay but the basis for the business model is exactly how things are done today in 1698 according to a report of the board of trade wow they hit a board of trade back then too the balance in favor of the company, including ships, stock, and debts due, some of the latter being admittedly not good. After deducting liabilities amounted to, wow, 189000 It is somewhat curious coincidence that the middle market price of the year, six gave a valuation of 176000 for the 1 million nominal capital <coughs> and the highest price, 17, a valuation of 187000 It will thus be seen that the history of the capitalization of the company is slightly complicated. 
and from the fact that stock was issued as low as 12 pounds, it might be concluded that the shareholders had suffered severely, exactly, by the reduction of the value of their holdings. Yeah, no kidding, Sherlock. It is to be remembered, however, that the total capital of 1100000 1, represented cash payments of 240 pounds only. Rank, ranking the amount of stock handed over to creditors and shareholders of the company, I'm sorry, shareholders of the old company as cash. Wow. So out of the capital, uh, 1100000 they only paid out 240000 to the creditors and the shareholders. Yeah, honey, they got... They lost big time in their investment. Now, taking the four years, 1698 to 1701, being the period intervening between the last issue of share capital and the first flotation of bonds, which later event affected quotation, the mean price was 16 three-eighths, and therefore the valuation of the uh, 1,100,000 stock was... 180,000. Therefore, at this price, the total investment of 240,000 was valued at 180,000. Dang. The loss being 60,000 or only about 25% while at the highest price for the four years, 24, the market price showed a profit of nearly 10%. The same facts may be expressed in another form. The original 100-pound stock was converted into 400-pound stock without fresh capital being brought in. In other words, by the rearrangement of 1691, 25-pound of the original subscription commanded 100-pound of stock. The issues of 1693 and 1697 were made at 40 and 12 respectively, so that taking into account the different amounts subscribed, the average issue price of 100 pound stock was about 21.85. Okay, the following table shows the position of the stockholders at this average with some representative quotations. Okay, so I'm not going to go over that detail. I think we're getting the gist of this where they were, child, they totally botched this company. They totally, totally botched it. And again, the reason I am going over this as detailed as I am, so we can truly understand what the purpose of the Royal African Company of England, what it was really about, what was specifically being traded um, what was really going on, who was doing the trading, what was the profitability about. And so now as we get into these details, we're seeing out the gate that this particular business model was a bust. We're also seeing that uh, the African slave trade was not, was not the primary thing that was being traded. It was only one thing. 
And as a matter of fact, they pointed out that the African slave trade was not profitable. Okay. All right. So in 1702, the company being still in want of money, a new method of finance was adopted at a general court held on December 15th. It was resolved that a call should be made of six pounds per cent, or is that 6%, I'm sorry, 6% on all stockholders and bonds were to be given for the amounts paid in response to this assessment. This call represented nearly 50% of the price paid by persons who had recently purchased stock. So basically it seemed like they were only paying out 50 cent on, well, we would say on the dollar or 50 cent on the pound in this case to the uh, shareholders. Uh, 50% of the price paid by the person who had recently purchased stock. Following the same method, seven pound was called in 1704, four pound in 1707, and four pound in 1708. So child, the longest you, you stayed holding this stock, the less you was getting. The, those calls should have brought in about 230 pound, but only 207 was paid. By one of the many coincidences in the finance of this company, the total amount of calls, 21%, almost exactly equaled the average issue price of the stock. Besides these bonds accepted by stockholders under compulsion, there was due to outsiders also on bond over 92,000, making the total debt about 300,000. Thus, in 1706, the capital of the company was as followed due on bond about 300,000 stock um, over a million okay all right so let me just see how much more I want to go through this because I think we're getting the point uh, they made a mess of this uh, okay so uh, saying this mode of finances, as well as the pressure of loans generally on the company at a critical period of its history was more serious hindrance to its prosperity than those losses of the war or the competition of the separate traders. If the increment of capital from undivided profits in 1691 was bona fide, it had confessedly been lost. All right, so we're, I don't think we have to go through any more of this because um, Chalet made a mess of their finances. Uh, they didn't got me tongue-tied, but I think we get the gist of what was going on here. Okay. <clears throat> All right, I'm just going through it. Just bear with me just to make sure it's not any meat. Okay, uh, so just real quick, it says from 1715 to 1718, the company continued to be unfortunate. The lowest price of the four years was only 15 or 16 for the reduced 
capital, thus repeating those from 1697 to 1700 for the O. Okay, a further instance of the ill luck of the company came in 1720 when an issue of capital known as the engrafted stock was made at a lower low price and within a few months the price has risen to 23 and a half. All right. Okay, so we get the gist of this. Child, this company was a hot mess. Okay, so again, this is giving you the constitution and finances of the Royal African Company of England from its founding. Okay, so what I want you all to get out of this is the main thing of you know how it was a hot mess. Their business model was absolutely atrocious. But also, um, they were only able to trade in a certain place. And it's telling you, uh, Salie to the Cape of Good Hope and the adjacent islands. The company had the right of acquiring land within these limits, provided such lands were not owned by any Christian prince. To have and hold for a thousand years, subject to payment and to elephant teeth. So elephant teeth must have really been lucrative back up in the day. And poor elephant elephants, they um still being poached today for their, um, what's the thing? Not their trunks. Y'all know what I'm trying to say. The thingies that stick out of their face. Poor elephants. All right. Um. So also what they were authorized to trade. So that was land. The next one was mining. Okay. And then um, the other ones, they did talk about uh, slaves as we got down into it as well. Okay. So this Royal Charter Company so here it is. I knew I was missing something. So what was going out from England to Africa was all goods. What they were able to bring back, it said gold, silver, Negroes. Okay, so the Negroes rep represent what they're calling the African slave trade. Redwood and other goods. Okay. So this is the crust of what was being traded in the Royal African Company, all right? And then as we go in, we get into the meat of this, we also see where they were talking about how it was not profitable for them to trade African slaves. It became too expensive, all right? So this whole narrative of millions and millions of African slaves coming over to the Americas uh, just doesn't make sense because it just wasn't profitable. And we know these folks don't do anything that's not profitable. So now let's get into some of the numbers. This is from uh, the African slave trade numbers. Now this is from the Slave Voyagers website, Transatlantic. Okay, we did uh, show data from 1508 to 1866. 
Now you see what we're flagging. We're flagging Spain, uh, Portugal to Brazil, to Portugal to Brazil, Portugal to Brazil, Great Britain, Netherlands, USA, Polybou Francais, France, Denmark. So you see, I have all of these checked from this particular date range. Let's go down to the totals. 12 million total. You have to take into consideration all of these particular nations from the 1500 to the 1800s. So where are the millions? Where are the millions of African slaves that they claim hit the American shores? When the slave voyage records show from the 1500s to the 1800s, so what's that? 15, 16, 17, 18, 300 years across all nations involved in slave trading, there were 12 million. So let's get down to the specifics. Let's look at the U.S. only. It's only showing you 305,000. So just to make it clear, we're going to take off all of these other ones. The total of slaves documented coming into the USA 305,000. That's from 1,500 to 1,866, so over 300 years. And they even tell you through the time periods the numbers. So in the 1,600s, total of 824. Late 1600s to 1700s, 3300, 1700s, uh, 3200, 1701 to 1725, so now, let's be clear, that does not mean all of these numbers came specifically from Africa. Okay? Because it could have been from port to port. All right? So it could have been other prisoners of war from other nations. Also, but let's say we want to throw that out. Let's say it's all African slaves. Where are the millions? Where are the millions? 
So according to their records, the highest amount of slaves was in the 1800s to 1825. 109,000. So the highest periods was between 1775 through 1825. And even if we want to assume all of this were all pure African slaves, it is still far over the 305,000. Now, to get into specific tracing all of these particular numbers in these time periods back to Africa, we would have to pull the ship manifest. Okay. All right. So that's just the U.S. Let's look at Brazil's numbers. Brazil's numbers are much higher. <coughs> Excuse me, family. Than North America's numbers. They put Brazil's numbers at almost 6 million, 5.8 million. But notice where it's coming from. Portugal slash Brazil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the millions that they talk about for North America slavery, and notice the game, peep game for the U.S., it just says USA. So that proves my point. It's not telling you that the slaves are coming from Britain's port, it's not telling you that it's coming from Africa. It's because it's jumbling all of that up. So that would mean that in, that's including prisoners of war within North America being transported to the Caribbeans and vice versa. That's mixed in with these numbers. They're not telling you specifically what makes up this 300 and something thousand. It's not telling you the origins. It just says USA, which is North America. But yet it tells us specifically Brazil's numbers. It's telling you Portugal. Same with Great Britain. Let's look at Great Britain's numbers. Great Britain at 2 million. But it's not telling you what origins are, where are these folks coming from? In Spain, they tell you in Denmark, they tell you. See with France. Let's see how many France accounts for. A million something. See what the Netherlands account for. 
Okay, 554,000, but still not telling you the origins of what make up those numbers. So let's put them all back on here so you can see once again. So the total, again, the total from the time periods of 1501 to 1866, so 300-something years, was $12 12.5 million across all of these different nations, Spain, Portugal, Great Britain, Netherlands, USA slash North America, France, Denmark, The highest slave population on record, they have Brazil with 5.8 million. And they're saying Portugal slash Brazil. So the Portugal slave trade. So you would have to go and look up the Portugal history of the slave trade to get details on where they were getting their slaves from. Okay? Great Britain. Don't list no source. Just says Great Britain. 3.2. They are the second largest. France. Don't give you no details on them either. 1.3 million. Spain, so they're telling you here, Spain, uh, you will have to go into the Spanish records, Spain's records to determine where they were doing their slave trading, how they were navigating it. Was it really off of the coast of Africa or was it something else or was it a combination of both? A little over a million. The lowest in the slave trade was Denmark at 101,000. The second lowest, the second lowest in the Atlantic slave trade, the second lowest in the Atlantic slave trade is the USA slash North America at 305,000. So help me to understand again how the official narrative that they have taught for a few hundred years that everybody's heritage in North America that is melanated slash black is a slave narrative. Help me to understand that. It's not accurate. It is a narrative that was created to hide the true story. And the true story is you had millions of melanated slash black people that were already in the Americas. 
and you had people coming into America, North America, as immigrants that were also black. Under indentured servant contracts as black Europeans. So at a minimum, at a minimum, if we take their numbers at face value and assume there would only be 305,000 African slaves that came into the Americas from 1501 to 1866. And that's being generous for African slaves. Because this is just giving us a general number. It's not telling us that the origins on this number were from Africa. We have given you an example of the Royal African Company of England, how it became expensive for them to slave trade in Africa, okay? So I just wanted to, once again, give you all some insight into um, the Royal African Company and um, just, just again, the Royal African Company was an English mercantile trading company set up in 1660 by the Royal Steward family in the city of London. Merchants to trade along the west coast of Africa. All right. But it was about much more than the African slave trade, to be fair. They were trading much more other things. Matter of fact, it appears more profitable things. Okay. All right. And so Wikipedia gives you um, the coat of arms. Okay. So you see the coat of arms there. And uh, they also had a company flag. Okay. So I hope that... Um, this made some sense to you, family. I just wanted to once again show you an example of how the official narrative they're telling you, they picked the pieces out that they wanted to pick out purposely to fit it the way they wanted it to fit today to explain how the population, specifically in North America, came about. But that's not actually how it happened, on down to who was actually ruling, smelinated people that were sitting in the seat of power. We have proven that with just the Stewart family bloodline alone, On down to now, the actual numbers 
of the slave trade. Okay? This is why it is important for you as individuals to do your own genealogy. This is why those of us that have done our genealogy, we can't find those slave records. This is why. Because in North America, let's just recap. I'll take all this off and separate so we can clearly see. In North America, or the mainland, it was only 305,000. And we can't even chunk that all up as being African slaves. You see, the highest volume of the slave trade was from 1801 to 1825. Okay. The highest was Brazil. Okay. So this is why it is important for you to do your genealogy. This is why it is also important for you to seek out other sources of what they are calling history. This is the hidden history that they do not teach in school, but it is known, you better believe, it is known by these Ivy Leagues and the quote, quote, elite. So it is our responsibility to know these things, to truly know who we are, and to make sure that we educate our children properly. So we can not only understand and overstand who the true enemies were and are, and we do not repeat these cycles again, and we do not pass a legacy of slavery down to our children. So I hope you all got uh, something out of this. Um, if you are not subscribed to us, I highly encourage you to subscribe, like, and share. This is Rhonda with WTUZ Radio Podcast. Peace and love, family. What? <laughs>